You know, when you have that insatiable thirst for anything or junk food or any such thing, and then you find something that's actually substantial, and then you can enjoy a couple of you know bites of something, and you just feel like, wow, that was really good, and I'm cool now. Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. Our guest today invented the term hair clubbing, and now that I know it, it's the only way I want to get my hair done. Strew Olufsen and his wife Julia created Blade Hair to be a different salon experience, and they got that right. Where else can you get an old-fashioned while having a cut and color? Why don't we start with how you got to London? <laughs> I got an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, I actually spent quite a bit of time playing around the world, and uh, a certain producer, who we shall not name, that happened to be a big influence and in some of my big influences, um, was mixing some of my stuff and offered me a record deal. So you were a musician? Yeah. So I uh, dropped my old band, I was kind of fed up with the whole democracy aspect anyway, and uh, just, you know, said, what the hell, see what happens, so uh, moved over here. Um, and where were you? In Soho, straight, right into the, the fire, so to speak, because um, I knew I would be working around studios in the area and stuff, and I'm, I'm a city boy, so it sounded good. I couldn't bear the thought of commuting like an hour back and forth, it's just not my thing. So anyways, we started doing that, and uh, it was working fine for a while, and then it stopped working fine, so I ended up just working as an engineer in uh, the showman's studio, and that was fun and nice, but um, in the long run, I got bored of it, so then just kind of went out, um, did my own thing for a while, and next thing you know, uh, I needed a haircut, I walked into Julia's place down in Burr Street, and um, yeah, about a year from, from that point in time, things started moving in quite unpredictable directions. Okay, before you go in that direction, we have to go backwards a okay. little. You said you're a city boy, does that mean you were born in a city? Yeah, um, I was born and grew up in Zagreb, Croatia. So, I mean, you know, city, like a million people, whatever, but still in comparison. So, uh, you know, child of the concrete, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my thing. What instrument did you play? Um, well, natively speaking, I'm a guitarist and, and a frontman, sort of vocalist type. I wouldn't call my vocalizing singing exactly, but, you know, good old rock and roll style stuff. So, um, so how old were you when you started a band? Oh, I don't even remember, like teens, you know, early stuff, high school, that kind of thing. And um, what were you playing? Like, what was your favorite stuff to play? 
Um, well, we did our own thing, uh, recorded an album in Canada and toured around the world. So it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, especially for a bunch of Croatian lads, because um, you know we grew up with the TV, so the English wasn't a problem. And then we just you know saw the world, and the world liked us. And uh, well, what was the band called? Uh, it, it changed names often. Uh, you'll leave <laughs> so it you in don't that. Get in there. Some of it is quite embarrassing, but um, it seemed to have worked. But yeah, let's just say it, it was all in the past. <laughs> and where were you when you got the offer you couldn't refuse? I was actually in New York City. I was doing some other stuff, um, recording. I was um, doing a documentary with a friend of mine, all kinds of different things. And the, the call came through and I was like, right, okay, I'm in. And so, can you discuss any of that? As in, like, what was the offer? And oh, it was just a you know a three sixty deal. I mean, um, it was a record deal, but he would be the person who set up everything for management, and uh, he has his own record label over the start. Um, but the point was that he wanted to make a record with me and set me up for the you know kind of like the whole Hendrix story. You know, you have someone who's big in local circles and, you know, takes you under their wing and says, right, let's do this. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite a stubborn guy. Uh, it appears that he had a really strange idea about what I should be in terms of uh, the musical persona and the genre. So he ended up trying to push me into some sort of white Marvin Gaye territory, which I wasn't really exactly comfortable with. Um, so yeah, we just parted ways. After a while, I mean, you know, amicably, everything was great. It's just, you know, we agreed to disagree. All right, then you walked into Julie's shop. Was yeah. it here? Yeah, it was just in Borough Street. I mean, my hair was like down, like, you know, below my elbows kind of thing. I looked like a total metalhead at the time, and I realized it's not really what I want to project. So I'm just like, right, I need someone to cut this off now. And uh, then I was just walking around and it kind of felt quite intimidating, you know, because you, you see all these places around Soho and it's all kind of fancy schmancy. It's like, you know, three people at a perfect looking reception staring you down, you know. And the only place that looked reasonable, like, you know, I just want to get in here, get this done, get out without, you know, any fuss, was uh, Julius' old uh, place on Brewer Street called Splash. It still exists. Um, and yeah, the rest is, as they say, history. <laughs> And what is that history? So you went in, you got your haircut, you thought this was great? Yeah, I wasn't really focusing on the haircut that much, to be honest with you. So, um, you know, the usual routine. I I was uh, cheeky enough. (laughs) I can't wait to hear what the usual routine is. Well, you know, uh, you you notice someone that really appeals to you, you start having a chat, and they say, you know, uh, how about getting a cup of coffee or something? Uh, Next thing you know, you know, we we hit it off. I mean, and actually there was a, a... pretty big gap between that is about a year because um, she was engaged at the point in time mm. <laughs> so I kept it very nice and clean uh, but I was just on the lookout you know I checked up on her often you got your hair cut a lot so it went shorter yeah. and shorter and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like every couple of months I'd be and plus I used to live in the neighborhood still so um, yeah next thing you know we, um, we became an item mm-hmm. and then we started thinking um, at that time I was doing a lot of 3D movie editing because that was good money and kind of fun. Uh, and I, I needed a rest from the music industry anyway. Um, and uh, I just wanted to set up a little place for a little lady. You know, just like, okay, I got my own thing and let's see what you can do. So we said, okay, let's get a shop. 
and uh, I figured, you know, I'll be involved for a year if, you know, max, and then I'm just going to go back to my old tricks. Yeah, five years, years later. <laughs> five years. <laughs> We're here now, five and a half, I think. Um, but yeah, it was a big learning curve, you know, owning your own business, because I used to do a lot of stuff based on my own um, you know, ability as a you know sort of solo guy. So it's it's easy when you don't have to manage other people and, and work with things like you know leases and you know stuff like that. So it was sort of a growing up kind of thing. Um, and then yeah, we started this. Uh, first thing I said, look, this is you know just generally speaking, hair salons are horrible. You know, we need to do something about this because it's just boring and drab. And like, who wants to do that? So. My first thought was, let's put um, iPads on the chairs. That seemed to go well. Then I said, why don't we get a coffee bar in there? Because, you know, first thing anyone says when they come in, they're early. Oh, I'm just going to go and grab a cup of coffee. And I'm like, yeah, well, why don't we just make a coffee shop right inside? So we did that. I think actually that might have been Julia's idea, though. So I might be taking that one. Um, and next thing you know, we were starting doing uh, jazz gigs and stuff because, again, I'm a musician, I'm bored, and I'm thinking, well, how can we make this a little bit more interesting? And that was really hitting the spot. Would you get jazz musicians who yeah, weren't we playing? Because it was during the day, yeah. right? Yeah. So you'd I mean, get them who would actually you know. get like a you know, duo or trio just to chill and jam. Um, and then we started thinking, well, it'd be cool if we could do some cocktails while the guys are playing. You know, maybe that could work. So we started in those, uh, using all kinds of illegal arrangements, um, fully above board, I have to say. And uh, that give, gave us the idea of trying to you know, continue in that direction. So then we came up to the point where now we have a full-fledged bar that I'm right behind. And um, that kind of started doing its own thing, and now we call it hair clubbing. And uh, I think we're doing a little bit in changing the hairdressing culture towards something far more civilized and convivial. Now, did you drink something specifically before you thought of this? Was there a cocktail you liked? Well, actually, I, I mean, to be honest, my drinks education started um, during those early years when I would be so bored out of my mind because, you know, it's like you just open the shop. It's not exactly, you know, crazy busy. Um, so I used to go and hang at Milroy's of Soho, which is up on Greek Street. And then in that iteration, it was just a booze shop and they had like a little tasting basement set up. So I got friendly with the guys. Simo? Um, uh, nope, that was before his time. Oh, before yeah. Simo, because I've interviewed him for yeah. this very podcast. Well, I've, just, I've literally just seen him up on the street in front of the vintage house. <laughs> um, Pre-Simo. Pre-Simo. So um, the guys um, who were managing the shop kind of took me under their wing. And uh, the, the shop would close at 7, conveniently. And then they'd just, you know, show me around the wonderful world of whiskey, which sort of civilized me. It was another sort of growing up point because that, that was the first time I realized I can actually enjoy um, an alcoholic beverage in a sort of you know, intellectual and emotional capacity and, you know, reap the you know, joy uh, benefits of being merry. But um, it kind of was the first thing that sort of hit the spot, you know, when you have that, you know, insatiable thirst for anything or junk food or any such thing and then you find something that's actually substantial 
and then you can enjoy a couple of you know bites of something and you just feel like wow that was really good I'm cool now that's what it did for me and uh, I really started observing my own perception of whiskey um, and it kind of took me towards the whole idea of you know bar and, and, and booze because before that I just didn't really pay attention I mean you know what were you drinking when you were in the band just everything and anything yeah. you know just a silly kid you know just put it on the bar and let's see how fast and how much of it we can do mm. as opposed to what is it you know but partially that's also because you don't really you need someone to show you the good stuff you know because when I was a kid it's like right this is called whiskey right okay let's see what is it um, it is um, a little thing called I don't know like Valentine's or Famous Grouse and then you try it and you know you get the shakes and you go like right okay done whiskey you know take the box no longer you know need it then you try something really good and you go well wait you're telling me that that's whiskey and I go yeah and I'm like okay and then you go like how what you know who, who makes this stuff how does it happen what, what's the whole deal what's this scotch what's this bourbon thing you know and then you dive in and next thing you know you're a full-fledged whiskey geek which I probably am and so when you started the bar here were you thinking it would be a whiskey bar or heavy on the whiskey yeah I, I was full on selfish <laughs> at that point. Um, as I said, this all came about really organically, so um, it wasn't, I mean, there was a business angle to it, but it was more like you just go where, you know, you feel pulled towards mm-hmm. in a way. So the first thing I was thinking is, you know, just a really cool little whiskey bar. Uh, and then to my huge disappointment, you know, there are other drinks that I may not like as much, but, you know, the people do like. So that was a, a kind of a forcing me to get acquainted with the other stuff, like the beers and the cocktails and whatever, not wine and so on. Um, so, yeah, I'm still learning. We all are, you know. Um, Has anything captured your heart as much as whiskey? No. No. Um, I, I do enjoy making cocktails because I find that the idea of um, figuring out what works together is quite compatible with the perception of whiskey. You know, it kind of goes along the same line. You're just looking for things that naturally fit. Um, so you can you can detect very early on if something is conflicting and grating or if it's uh, really working out. So I think I'm still basically thinking whiskey as as general sort of rule of thumb. But it is kind of like the same thing. You're just looking for a harmony. And um, the first couple cocktails, did you create them yourself? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, first you go, okay, you know, cocktails, um, because I was never big on them, because they're usually too sweet for my taste, um, and, you know, it's, unfortunately, um, like, ten years back, I think, before this whole mixologist thing came up, it was more about a, a bad excuse to just chuck some pretty average or below average spirits with a lot of sugar, and just sell it, you know, on a marked up price, and get you drunk faster, uh, like bubblegum alcohol, I call it. So um, when it started, you know, kind of being obvious to me to learn, you know, you just go and naturally, what's the first thing I do? An old fashioned, <laughs> because I can relate to that. Um, and then it became really interesting um, because I started discovering different flavors and different stuff. And um, being a musician, I guess my imagination is uh, quite out there. So I started combining certain things. So I think I've done maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 signature cocktails so far. Um, some of them I don't really put on the menu because either I think they're a bit too far out there or um, they could be just a little bit um, 
not there yet, so to speak. Like I'm, I'm working on something at this moment which involves beetroot juice and apple cider vinegar because I just realized they really work well together in a sort of sweet and sour capacity. Um, but I was annoyed because I've tried quite a few spirits and nothing worked other than vodka, which I consider to be really boring. So I'm still on the search for the really interesting, you know, sort of curveball base spirit to use without a combo. Do you get your regulars to try some of them out here? Yeah. I mean, I, when I come up with something, I'll usually just go around and first of all, I'll just take, you know, a glass upstairs and give it to all the stylists to just kind of like take a tiny sip and, um, I'm, you know, because you're observing, you know, is it a male, is it a female kind of a robust, you know, testosterone thing or is it a gentle, sweet thing? So you're kind of trying to gauge reactions and such. Um, but yeah, you, you have to test the waters. But funnily enough, I usually know exactly what I want, and if I like it, I like it. It's just a question of whether it's going to be, you know, uh, something that the general public will find acceptable or not too risky, because some of the stuff is quite out there. And then some of the stuff is really disappointingly, um, apparently scary to the mainstream, right? So I have this thing, I call it the Devil's Blade. Uh, which is just uh, a spiel on the Boulevardier. So um, I replace, in a Negroni you have your gin, you have your vermouth and Campari. So I replace the gin with rye, which makes the Boulevardier, but then I replace the vermouth with a Mexican red chili liqueur. And they really work beautifully together. And the chili liqueur is obviously one third or even less of the whole concoction, and it is not spicy, you know what I mean, by any, it's just like a tingle, but people are so afraid of it. and. Then, you just go, okay, it's a shame. So, so, you know, you have to figure out which ones are mainstream friendly and which ones are like oddballs that people who may be looking for something a little bit more interesting and have the palate will appreciate. But, you know, you'll sell like you know, a couple of them in, in, in a month instead of like, you know, espresso martinis, which is like, right, you know, you just put them out on the, in the production line and they just keep coming out. Not to say that it's bad. It's just, <laughs> you know, I think uh, people generally... Fear is an element, you know, and there are just, most people are not really interested in the unknown. Well, I think they probably think I'm paying 10 quid for a drink or whatever it is at a bar. Mm. I want to make sure that I like this. Mm. Otherwise, there's 10 quid down the drain. Yeah. And, you know, well, now I think most, the bars, at least in London, you know, talk to you about what you like hmm. so I mean, that, that you don't fall into too. that. I, yeah. I usually, you know, because people will be like, oh, I want this one. I'm like, okay, well, what do you normally enjoy mm -hmm. you know or recommend something and I have to start from somewhere so I usually try the same thing but um, we we try to do a very detailed and most I mean you know you'll see a list of ingredients in a cocktail to a certain extent I try to be quite detailed but then again you know people are not into that I and mean, some people don't know what a calvados is you know what's this calva you know thing and then you have to kind of explain and then I take the bottle off the shelf and you know like pour a little bit or give them a nose or something but yeah and, it, it, and is this all while doing their hair yeah, before, during, after, it all happens, you know. Um, Thus hair clubbing. I'll yes, come back to that because exactly. I kind of stopped you there and made you go back. Yeah. So, so is that your idea of hair clubbing? Well, I mean, um, we call hair clubbing this new thing which is combining um, socializing and a bar venue with the whole chore of going around hairdressing. Um, and the idea behind it is just to transform it into a... A social experience so um, and most or pretty much the vast majority of places you're not really incentivized to bring a friend 
Uh, so that's the first thing we're trying to you know, correct because um, I think it's much more fun if you bring in someone that you can still keep chatting to whilst you get your hair done. And if that someone and yourself can enjoy a nice beverage, be it alcoholic or not, it brings the whole thing onto a whole different level of, you know, on the scale of was this time well used or wasn't it? Because normally it's just a chore, so we're trying to get away from that. Um, and the hair clubbing is just um, something, we were struggling to find a word for it because it's difficult to um, explain new categories to people, so we found that hair clubbing sounded, um, although people don't get it, you know, when they hear it the first time, hopefully they will at some point, um, because it may become a, a sort of a vernacular um, item, but um, it's about just something catchy and hair related that people will smile to and be like, oh really, yeah, oh, yeah, I get it, you know, clubbing, aha, uh -huh, okay, I get it, it's kind of, there's some fun element in there, and obviously if it's hair clubbing, like, what is it? And that's pretty much all you need. You just need um, to sort of open that door a little bit and put a foot in, and then when you explain it, it's like, oh yeah, I get it. Because if you say, oh, it's a, you know, it's a bar salon, then it's like, still weird. It needs something catchy, it needs something to fire up the old imagination, so... So far, we'll find it works. I think it sounds great, and I want to try one of your cocktails. Mm. Will you go up and make one for me? Yeah, I think I might have to find a special recipe for it. Ah. Thanks to Strew for joining me on the show today. If you're ever in Soho, London, come by for a drink and stay for a cut. One of Strew's iconic whiskey cocktails is our cocktail of the week. It's called The Name of the Rose, and you'll see why. Pour all the following ingredients directly into an old-fashioned tumbler. 50 mLs of Four Roses Single Barrel Bourbon, 25 mLs of Luxardo Maraschino, 3 dashes of Abbott's Bitters, but Angostura will do fine in a pinch. Then, place an oversized ice cube made from fresh-brewed rosebud tea into the cocktail and swirl it as you would any whiskey. Then, garnish with a dried rosebud. As the ice melts, the rose flavors will increase and enhance the cherry notes of the maraschino, as well as the floral notes of the bourbon. Just so you know, the cocktail is still absolutely lovely and super simple to make, even without the rosebud tea ice. This and all the recipes you hear on the podcast can be found at alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Next time on Lush Life, we head up to the highest ski resort in Europe, Val Torrens. We meet Eunice Bahir at the Hotel Pashmina, whose cocktail creations are as cool as the weather outside. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life podcast the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra, and I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.